Hello and welcome to the new season of the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Philip Gooding and I am a project manager at the Indian Ocean World Centre, McGill University. For this recording, I am thrilled to be joined by Professor Tamara Fernando, who is a professor of history at Stony Brook University in New York in the United States. Professor Fernando earned her PhD at the University of Cambridge in 2022 with a thesis entitled Of Mollusks Some Men, Pearling Labour and Environments in the Indian Ocean, 1880 to 1925. Her research and teaching interests lie at the intersection of histories of labour, environment and science, with a particular focus on the 19th and 20th century Indian Ocean world. In that vein, she's the author of Seeing Like the Sea, a multi-species history of the Ceylon pearl fishery, which was published in Past and Present last year, and of mapping oysters and making oceans across the northern Indian Ocean, 1880 to 1925 which was published in this year's January issue of Comparative Studies in Society and History. Although we will delve into several aspects of Professor Fernando's research in this podcast, it is mostly on the latter article that we will focus. Professor Fernando, thank you so much for joining us. I just want to open with a question, a very broad question. Why oysters and why pearling? What brought you to the topic of oysters, pearls and pearling in the Indian Ocean world? And how did your project evolve from its early stages to what it eventually became? Thank you, Philip. And thank you also to Sam, who's here with us. I'm really thrilled to be here on the podcast. I guess like all academic journeys, it's a little circuitous. I had applied to do a PhD in history on gender and colonial photography in Ceylon or Sri Lanka. So... Nothing remotely uh, mollusk-oriented or around the ocean. But I was working prior to um, starting my doctoral work on a non-academic project with a group of ecologists and photographers. We were producing a book, again, not an academic text, not densely cited, not published by an academic press, um, on a region in Sri Lanka called Mannar, or Mana. So this is the closest proximate region to South India. If you imagine Sri Lanka like a little teardrop, you're thinking about the northwest coast. And we spent several months photographing birds and trees, um, doing lots of underwater work around sharks and reefs um, and other kinds of fish. And I'd written a very brief historical introduction to the book, co-written with one of my other collaborators. But... It turned out my project on colonial photography was not very well written and not a viable PhD project. So um, in discussions with my supervisor, talking about sort of extra academic work, he said, well, tell me more about this history of Manna that you're working on in Perling. And it turned out that there really wasn't very much written about the Perling complex or the Perling industry. And in Ceylon, Pearling, so the trade to harvest oysters from the bottom of the ocean floor for pearls, was run in the 19th century as a colonial monopoly. What that means is that Ceylon at this point is a British crown colony, and every harvest of oysters would both be managed by the colonial state, but also the proceeds or revenue from pearling The majority of those proceeds are registered as a sort of colonial trade. So it's deeply profitable, deeply entangled with empire in this period. What that means is that there's a really thick and deep archival record across 
the two major archives in Sri Lanka. So um, I sat in the archives like historians do and started reading about Perling. And I had framed this initially as a project that would be a history of Sri Lanka. I then found essentially almost entirely through the archive that I was led to other places. So one of, I think the first documents was a British colonial document from 1822 um, or 1824, perhaps, that had six South Indian divers and a shark charmer. So we would call this figure a Kadal Katti, um, a folk ritualist who could promise certain kinds of magical rituals to keep divers safe from sharks. These six divers and the Kadal Katti were sent to southern Burma um, to explore the pearling reefs. And this is very early, this is around the first Anglo-Burmese war, if we want to think about the British Empire in Burma, Myanmar or Southeast Asia, this is long before they have complete control of what becomes British Burma. So I thought that's really interesting. Why are six divers and a shark charmer being sent to Myanmar at this time? Um, and the second sort of archival find was that I would find these lists of ships that were working in the Gulf of Manna with ship crew listed. So essentially, what is a boat registration? And many of these names, um, they're single, you don't have full names. So you would just have the first name of the diver working on the boat. So I would find lists of Ali, Muhammad, um, Saeed, many, you know, I mean, maybe 10 to 15 names per boat. And it turned out that these were not Tamil Parava divers or Muslim Marikaya divers. So those are the two main groups who worked in Ceylon. But they were Khalijis. So they were coming from the Persian Gulf or what we now call the GCC states um, from places like Bahrain and Qatar to work in Sri Lanka. So, yeah, on the one hand, I was pulled sort of towards the Southeast Asian story and then at the same time pulled towards the Gulf or the Middle East. So whatever we want to call it, sort of transnational, I don't know, global history, God forbid. <laughs> but um, I like to think about the sort of the, the archive is really leading that process, sort of pulling us towards regions that we might not necessarily put together. So now the book covers three sites, the Persian Gulf, the Gulf of Mannar and Southeast Asia. But that's a story that comes out of Perling and the ways that oysters and people are moving across the Indian Ocean. Wonderful. And I find it wonderful that you've, um, that obviously you start in the Gulf of Manor and then your piece in comparative studies and society and history, like the, the key case study here is the Persian Gulf. So I can see how the, the trajectory of your research really developed and expanded uh, in terms of geographical scope. Um, you kind of noticed a reference there to global history or transnational history. But of course, all of these locations you've mentioned can also be considered part of the Indian Ocean world and which during the time periods that you're, being, that you're considering um, were in different ways affected by capitalist exploitation and European colonialism. So I wondered how did kind of an Indian Ocean or an Indian Ocean world perspective help you to kind of elucidate the bigger picture of pearling under colonialism and capitalism in the early 20th century and late 19th century too? Thank you, Philip, that's a great question. There's a few different ways to splice it. So to think of Perling as an Indian Ocean story. Maybe the first thing to say is that 
coverage of purling or if we want to think about histories of purling, they look uneven across the Indian Ocean world. So if you were trained as a historian of the Gulf, if you are, say, a historian who works on change in Bahraini society between 1850 to 1900, or anywhere in the Gulf, really, purling has outsized importance, um, both in the Arabic literature and in the English literature. So it's really impossible. And one doesn't need to be a historian. You could be, you know, on a, a very long layover in Dubai or in Doha, and you would still probably have some brush with purling. So purling really has an outsized importance to the Gulf, both to how we write about it and to how it's memorialized, embedded in, in cultures of heritage and museums today, which is very, very distinct to the way purling is remembered in Sri Lanka and in Burma, Myanmar. So I think one of the real benefits of an Indian Ocean lens is that if we're thinking with the Gulf out, um, as we know with all kinds of Indian Ocean histories, it really pushes us to think beyond the nation. And this is perhaps the starting point if we were teaching our students about Indian Ocean history or answering the question of what is Indian Ocean history? I think many of us would answer that it pushes us beyond those kinds of nation containers. So it orients one beyond a certain national framing. The second is to say that as you know, again, having co-edited books on economic trade and animal life in the Indian Ocean, there is an economic story here that is very much an Indian Ocean story. So we can think about the 19th century as a moment that is completely transformative for many places across the Indian Ocean, as you mentioned, in terms of their integration into global capitalist systems. So we might want to think about the rise of the plantation and cash crops produced for export in a place like Sri Lanka. So first coffee and then tea, rice in a place like Burma, but also pearls and dates in the Gulf. So we can see these kinds of massive economic transformations that are really enabled by Indian Ocean stories. And here I'm thinking of merchant capital. So the role of the Indian merchant, the Banya merchant, or Gujarati or Western Indian capital and finance knitting this world together. And this is a story that historians like Pedro Mercado, when he writes about purling, um, they've really helped us to see that these kinds of economic transformations are not the result of very localized stories, but they're broad Indian Ocean stories about people and finance and law that cross the ocean. So for me, what is exciting about this project is to also think about other ways that purling is, is an Indian Ocean story. So how does the fact that in 1811, the British decide that Ceylon's pearl-bearing reefs are exclusive sovereign crown property, even if they are 21 miles out at sea, that decision in Ceylon or Sri Lanka absolutely a sort of legal touchstone for colonial administrators in the 1850s working in the Persian Gulf. So when they're trying to decide who owns the reefs in the Gulf, how do we delineate what a reef is in maritime law? There's this intra-imperial conversation between these sites. 
And I think these stories, so that's that's an element from law. We might want to think about examples from science. So for instance, because colonial science is so deeply rooted in the Ceylon case, one of the big discoveries for colonial marine scientists is pearls are produced by these microscopic parasites, so tapeworm larvae. What today, if we trained a scientist, we would call trematodes or nematodes, so these marine parasitic worms. And as they move through undersea um, ecologies, they are they have many hosts. So a host for the parasitic worm might be a stingray, it might be a shark, but they might also lay their larvae in oysters. And one of the big discussions in the early 20th century as well are the parasites that infect the oysters in the Persian Gulf, the same as the parasites that infect the oysters in Ceylon. So this is another way of saying that connection across the Indian Ocean is multi-layered. And I think there's certainly a story of economic and trade and merchant connections. But there's also all of these other kinds of connections in science and law that we perhaps don't know as well as stories that we tell about the ocean. And of course, you mentioned that the connections across the Indian Ocean are multi-layered, and as your research shows, is also multi-species. And I just want to, and I think this is one of the real key threads of your research that I really enjoyed reading about. And I wondered if you could just kind of expand on what this multi-species perspective is. For listeners who may not be familiar with multi-species approaches, could you kind of elaborate on what a multi-species perspective entails? Uh, and what are its contributions kind of broadly from a disciplinary standpoint or for the perspective of Indian Ocean world studies? Now, these could be, I suppose, established, but I also know this is kind of an emerging field or it's it's still relatively young, at least. Um, so what also do you think could be its potential contributions to um, the disciplinary practice or to Indian Ocean world studies moving forwards? Again, great question. I suppose to start with the the sort of the easier element of what does it mean to do multi-species work. For me, this mostly entails pulling on subfields of history such as um, animal histories or animal studies, also environmental studies, to shift or change, realign, re-narrate perhaps the kinds of narratives we tell about change over time. And in some ways, I think for me as as a, as a, a thinker or a writer, I, I've been really inspired by work in animal studies that is taking place in Asia. So I'll give you some examples. When a historian like Rohan Debroy asks us to think about, okay, well, we know we have these deep British colonial archives how does the fact that we know that white ants are munching away at these documents in colonial archives change how we think about the archive or colonial documentation or a paper trace or governmentality? Or what might it mean to think about... Um, in, a, in, a, in a way, this is me saying, I think that animal historians or historians who think about the place of the animal in history have given us a number of historical changes or processes that require us to think about the animal. So in the Indian Ocean world or in countries across the Indian Ocean world, we might think about 
wildlife change or biodiversity change. So the fact that human movement causes migration also of species, it leads to the extinction of species, it might introduce new species to a particular place. We might think about something like disease as animating human history. What does it mean to put the mosquito back um, into those histories of disease? Um, or to think about cholera in Asian history or in the history of the tropics um, microbially. Um, so essentially, I think what all of these different branches are doing is they're trying to ask us to think about what it does to take um, non-human life seriously. So to recognize that the vistas of historic change are populated and multiple right down to the level of the microbial. And I suppose the question then is, what is the contribution to Indian Ocean Studies specifically, drawing on these case studies? And for me, I suppose I think about it as a sort of move from taking these really fantastic insights from animal histories and animal studies and asking how how they inflect narratives about the Indian Ocean world. So I think, for instance, if we would say that one reason to narrate Indian Ocean history in this transnational oceanic frame is that um, mobility is really an important theme for the Indian Ocean. People moving, goods moving. So you're moving ivory from East Africa, um, which requires interaction with herds of elephants, and the savannah, so you're moving ivory from East Africa to um, Gujarat or Western India. What kinds of new narratives of economic life might we be able to tell if we integrate animal history? And I think this is a question you asked in an edited volume of yours. And yeah, I, I was very inspired once to read a line by Jonathan Saha and I there are other animal historians who think this way, but integrating the perspective of the animal forces us not to take the commodity form for granted. And I think part of Indian Ocean history's real sort of selling point, but also strong emphasis on trade and economy and merchant capital, to me as a reader, sometimes strikes me as having already accepted that a date palm is a commodity endowed with value, or that the elephant is sort of already written up as ivory for trade. And then I think the question is, well, as historians working with archives, if what we have is a list of import and export values for um, cloth or peacock feathers or cloves, how do we as historians then try to think about the clove tree as something beyond um, the ledger book. To me, the, the, the real challenge of doing, sort of moving beyond a purely anthropocentric perspective is then what kinds of sources and archives do we use to move beyond the trade log in Indian Ocean history? And you're absolutely one of the pioneers who are really thinking about this. I really look forward to seeing how a lot of your research moves forward and really elaborates this even further. And one of the things you kind of alluded to it there is um, that, there, that in terms of the field of animal studies, there are probably fewer historians than there are social scientists. 
And I'm interested to know how kind of these works on these other disciplines kind of influence your kind of perspective as a historian. How, in what ways have you kind of applied um, their methods? What ways have you adapted them? Um, and I suppose what kind of methodological challenges are there when trying to do so as well, particularly um, for the history of pearls in uh, the late 19th and early 20th centuries? It, I mean, well summarized, better than I could put it. I think one field that used to be very inspiring to me, I read fairly extensively in the Blue Humanities um, and we can trace, I don't know, synchronous turns to the blue across anthropology, literature, geography. And I was very inspired by a lot of work that took the ocean and its creatures seriously, whether that was a blue whale or a coral polyp or an albatross. And I think very much, um, at least at least in, in, in anthropology, certainly a commitment to bringing the sensory back. So to really thinking about embodied experience, which for me as a labor historian, the body or the working body and the way the body moves in an environment is very, is sort of central to how I think about what work meant through time. And I was reading all of this fantastic anthropology, also some work in literary studies, um, certainly Black feminist scholarship on the Atlantic that was much more immersive. You know, the ocean wasn't the ocean wasn't the Indian Ocean um, I knew from reading Indian Ocean history, where um, the the human stories were absolutely present to me, but the the monsoon was sort of purely a structure that one alluded to, and the ocean itself was not sort of turbulent and animate and alive. But then I I, I think you know I, I'm I'm very willing to say that as historians, our craft is to read archives. And so for me, the question was, well, if I can't interview or conduct an ethnography with divers or nahodas or sailors or um, pearl sifters who worked in the 1850s, is there a way to bring some of that texture of what it meant to work with the ocean back into the writing? And I think the answer is yes. I think that Although we aren't ethnographers or anthropologists, I think that a lot of the documents that we can access, historical documents, do have that kind of texture of, say, oral histories of pearl divers from Kuwait that um, Saifa Shamlan documented. How might we use the songs of the Naham or the, um, the singers on Gulf diving vessels? How might we mine this kind of document to get at some of the more embodied and sensory elements of work. Um, so I think intellectually, that was a, a real kind of cross-fertilization for me. And then the question was, well, how do we think, how do we reapply that back into the practice of reading historic archives? Yeah, so what archives to read, but also what we're looking for when we read them. Now, one of the archival materials that you do um, address in quite significant depth in your article 
in comparative studies in society and history are maps, a colonial era maps. And I wondered what drew to these maps. How did kind of your multi-species perspective encounter and shape your reading of these maps? And I suppose, what does an analysis of early 20th century cartography, how does that inform an understanding of, I suppose, human-animal relations or multi-species perspectives under colonialism? In some ways, I think this is me working backwards. As somebody who was asking the question, not just what does it mean to see like the sea, um, which is sort of thinking from the ocean out, but also the other way. So how do we see the, the ocean or the sea? These maps for me, they're scattered. So they're not in a single archive. Um, there are three maps one of which is a 1907 prospecting map for the pearl beds of um, Margie. Another one of the maps is um, made about, I think that's 13 years earlier in um, 1897 in Ceylon, which aims to plot all of the pearling reefs in the Gulf of Mannar. And finally, I use a map um, that was commissioned by John G. Lorimer, who is a British civil servant working in British India, who compiles what becomes the sort of um, colonial gazetteer par excellence for um, the Gulf. And in each of these instances, there is a claim to be representing or visualizing the bottom of the ocean floor for the first time. So if we think about marine science today or where we put the little pegs in developments in oceanography or marine science, these are very early attempts to cartographically survey the bottom of the Indian Ocean floor. Now, I should say here, most historians have a kind of caveat that up until the mid 20th century with what is known as the Indian Ocean Expeditions, I think maybe 1960 to 1965 or 68, perhaps, the Indian Ocean is one of the least known of the world's oceans, quote unquote, scientifically, so sort of big, big S science, capital S science. And there are lots of historians of the Indian Ocean who who repeat this. So um, it's an ocean that's not well known to us scientifically until the 1960s. And for me, as somebody also partly trained as a historian of science, I was thinking, well, there are longer legacies to ways of of thinking about the ocean scientifically. And so I was very intrigued by these early 20th century maps that said, well, we've surveyed not the deep ocean, um, but we've surveyed the continental shelf. And here is what, here are our first attempts to visualize the ocean floor. And... I think this this term of, of first is really interesting because to me, this became a, a crucial transition moment, if you will, in that we're thinking also of a period of um, high British imperialism. This is a, a moment when colonial attention towards the Persian Gulf is ramping up. Um, we're sort of seeing the height of the British lake in the Indian Ocean in, in some sense. Um, And to me, this is an interesting claim that science and surveying is 
capable of showing the ocean in these radically new ways, in part because if one was to turn to more social and cultural history archives around each of the communities that have been working with pearls for thousands of years, there are absolutely local traditions of thinking about space and cartography. So for instance, we might think of um, memoirs written by uh, famous Nahodas or ship captains in the Persian Gulf who have sort of deep and detailed knowledge of where all the different pearl beds lie on the seafloor. Or we can think about, again, navigational knowledge in South Indian languages that once again sort of describes modes of knowing the ocean for at least hundreds of years before this 20th century moment. So the question for me, I guess, is what is it about this moment, this intersection between empire science surveying and local communities around knowledge of the ocean, what's happening at this moment? So why is it that certain kinds of knowledge become quote unquote vernacular or indigenous or sort of unscientific and other kinds of knowledge become enshrined as ocean science with a capital S. So to me, a lot of the answers to what counts as legitimate scientific knowledge on the ocean are found precisely at this imperial turning point. So I think a motivating question for me is what kinds of knowledge come to be legitimated as valid expert knowledge about the ocean and what kinds of knowledge come to be seen as unscientific and how does looking at this early 20th century moment of empire and colonial science and long-standing work around a particular industry how does that help us answer what we think about as being ocean science today so of course you kind of alluded to um it there a little bit that um these maps are just one way of thinking um, about the ocean, even if that is now maybe the root of what we understood as ocean science. But what don't they show? Um, what is obscured and what is erased? And yeah, you've alluded to, I suppose, the knowledge of divers here, but can you kind of um, kind of give a little bit more on that? Because I think it's a really fascinating part of your research. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think this is where one needs to be, I've called it sometimes a sort of I suppose, a disciplinary unruliness or a certain kind of, um, I guess one, one could even say a sort of promiscuity of, of where what kinds of archives one reads. Um, so the maps are cartographic, they're visual. Um, and in some cases, they tell us a little bit more about how they're made. So one of the ways in is to think about how maps are made. So how these kinds of visions are achieved. Um, and if we look at the Ceylon example, for instance, we know that in order to plot the ocean floor, there are teams of divers who are going out, often with cast headmen, um, so sort of leaders or elders in, um, in the Hamlet community. And these divers are going out to sea and they make, in some cases, up to 200 dives on a single site um, in order to report back about what the bottom of the ocean floor looks like. And that's really, really important for this period in that unlike certain other kinds of colonial science, so the, the best example is 
um, Arctic science or the science of mountains, where their colonial science at this period valorizes the European braving this new environment. And that doesn't mean that local communities aren't equally essential to helping, say, British colonial scientists get up the Himalayas to survey and to explore plant life and climate. But um, there really was a kind of um, a sort of masculine spirit of heroism about saying, I was I went up the mountain or I, I was in in this difficult terrain. Um, for the entirety of this period, nobody is entering. None of these European scientists are immersing themselves below the waves of the Indian Ocean. So environment and body or environment and race, um, these are ideas that are sort of becoming co-produced in very specific ways, primarily because the only communities that are going underwater are local communities who've worked with pearls for a long time. So for me, the first sort of step was to think about the diver's body in making these descents. So in Ceylon, we have these wonderful little scientific charts that divers and ships would fill out for colonial scientists. So they would make a dive and they would surface and they would say, I saw in this place coral, I saw a patch of oysters and they were probably one to two years old or in this other site I found uh, crumpled shells but all the oysters had clearly been eaten by fish. So the first step was to kind of think well if we want to plot the bottom of the ocean how do we do that? Who is in contact with the bottom of the ocean? So those materials exist in the scientific archive. Then one could think a little bit more with the body and look at the medical archive. So we can look at um, hospital records in Ceylon. We can look at American missionaries in the Gulf who wrote about the ways in which diving impacted divers' ears and eyes and skin and hands. Um, what does it do to the body to make repeated descents underwater, whether that's your eardrums bursting or bleeding from the nose or decompression sickness and paralysis, especially in the Burmese case where the reefs are much deeper. So here already we're kind of triangulating between medical archives, scientific archives. And then I think you can really explode it out and think also culturally about what did it mean for divers to meet the ocean? Um, what does it mean if you are a Tamil diver making these descents, but you also worship Mariamma. So you worship goddesses of the sea. You think about the ocean um, as animate, as needing to be appeased, as providing a source of livelihood. So in a way, I guess for me, it was a process of sort of layering up from the maps. So you kind of trace the maps back and sort of consecutively add, I guess, again, pearl-like, you're kind of adding layers on to to how one reads the map. And I think it's really important to say that the archival material does exist. I mean, there is an incredible corpus of material in local languages. If we want to think about, you know, I mean, um, for instance, like, like popular songs around diving communities. I think there's, you know, there's a new book, a new edited volume of diving songs published every year by one Gulf state. So there is a lot of mater material that one can access 
to build broader social and cultural worlds. I think perhaps the challenge is how to sort of collate different material together so that you're you're sort of cross-fertilizing between different kinds of archives to understand this early 20th century moment. Yeah, there's so much potential here. And uh, I really um, want to hear more uh, and look forward to reading more as well. Um, and with that in mind, I'm going to close with one final question. And that is, what are you working on now? Uh, and what can we expect to see, read, hear um, from you um, about in the uh, near uh, or maybe distant future? <laughs> um, I have um, a project that is still very much in its fledgling stages, um, but essentially it takes a lot of the threads of purling in the late 19th century and stretches them out into the 20th and 21st. So this is very new for me. Um, it's not the time period I was trained in, but I think this intersection between capitalism, empire, and ocean, um, as we know from the work of, of several scholars, continues to be a really rich place to think with. So I am working right now on an essay that focuses on the deep sea port of Hambantota, which is in southern Sri Lanka and was one of the major, I mean, to date, one of two of the most expensive Chinese infrastructural investments in the Indian Ocean world. So we're thinking again about the port city, the network of ports stretching across an ocean space. Um, and for me, again, because I'm interested in not commerce per se, but it's intersections with science and animals and materials, um, there is now a university called Ocean University, again, funded through the same kinds of processes that is teaching marine science um, to myriad Sri Lankans in southern Sri Lanka. So for me, I'm really intrigued, again, by what the links between I, I guess one would, would call it geopolitics in the 21st century, not empire political economy as in the 19th, but um, the ways in which marine science, the way we think scientifically about the ocean continues to be shaped um, by these kinds of processes. So I'm working on, on something small around ocean university um, and its its relationship. So with the intention that it would, it would grow out, I would move sort of beyond pearling to other kinds of submarine engagements, but sort of stretching the the timeline forward a little bit. So we'll see where that goes. Wonderful. I really look forward to hearing more. Um, so just in closing, I want to say thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Fernando, for, for talking about your research with me today uh, and for your research in general, which is so valuable. Um, I also want to thank uh, Sam Glee Riemann for organizing, producing the podcast. And obviously, I want to thank you, the listener, for streaming and or downloading. Uh, once again, my name is Philip Gooding, and this has been the Indian Ocean World podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership Appraising Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. 